The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Anna Hickey, Associate Editor for Communications, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for January 20th, 2024. This week, Congress continued its debate on Ukraine aid and immigration reform. As the text of the legislation was being discussed, former President Trump urged Republicans to reject any deal unless they get everything needed. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from January 28th, 2017 in which Benjamin Wittes spoke with Stephanie Luter, the Mexico Security Initiative Fellow at the University of Texas at Austin, to chat about what Trump's much-promised border wall with Mexico would look like, how effective it will or won't be, and what this means for U.S.-Mexico relations. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast. January 28th, 2017. Five days after being sworn in as president, Donald Trump signed an executive order requiring the federal government to begin work on the much-promised border wall with Mexico. Setting aside the question of whether or not a wall would actually be effective from the perspective of border security, it will also be extraordinarily expensive, and Trump has proposed paying for it through a 20% tax on all imports from Mexico, though the White House walked that plan back after a flood of criticism. Tensions with Mexico have escalated to the point where Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto canceled his planned meeting with Trump next week. Benjamin Wittes chatted with Stephanie Leutert, the Mexico Security Initiative Fellow at the University of Texas at Austin, about what's next for Trump's favorite construction project. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 206, about that border wall. All right, so we're going to have a wall. Um, Let's start since that actually is uh, what the president wants. Uh, let's start with what the difference between having a wall and what we currently have is, because we don't have nothing right now. So like, what's there now, and how is it different from a wall that we're likely to see built? Of course, and thanks, Ben, for once again having me on the Lawfare podcast. Uh, we have a little bit right, more right now than nothing, We actually have 653 miles of fencing, and if you've ever been to any of the cities along the border, then you'll know that there is a fence or there is some type of barrier uh, between the Mexico and U.S. sides of the border. 
There are also, in certain areas, secondary fencing. So you don't just have a fence, you also have a fence kind of behind that to create a space that's even more secure. Uh, and in different areas of the border, in more remote areas, you have vehicle fencing, which isn't the, the type of kind of chain link or uh, steel fencing that you could imagine being in more, ur in more urban areas, but is kind of these barriers so you can't drive trucks through the desert. So that's, the, that's what we currently have. 660 miles, you said, of, of some kind of barrier. How much mm -hmm. is left? How much does that not cover? And what, what do we have in, in the areas of, of where there's no barrier? So for kind of, I guess, to give you a sense of, first of all, how long that is, that's the equivalent of some type of physical barrier that goes from uh, Miami all the way to Atlanta, straight, uh, so in, non-interrupted. That's the amount of fencing that we currently have on the border. And then to think about uh, what's left, it would be the equivalent of Atlanta all the way up to northern Maine. Uh, so we still have about 1,500 miles that don't have any type of fencing. But some of it has a now, big river. <laughs> Some of it has a big river, some of it has national parks, some of it has uh, huge swaths of very uninhabitable desert, very difficult to cross in, in those sections. Some of it has Native American land, some of it has really jagged cliffs. Uh, the border, we like to think of the border as a very kind of monolithic entity. But when you're going from Brownsville in Texas to El Paso to the Arizona desert to San Diego, every single part of the border looks a little different. Uh, and most of it actually is really tough, rugged uh, environment and difficult to cross. So in the areas, actually, the Bush administration's policy and why they chose this fencing was to put the fencing in the areas that are the easiest to cross, in the urban areas, in the in the areas where it's just, it would be a quicker trek or a quicker drive or easier for anyone who wanted to make that crossing. And they were funneling people to the more remote areas, to the desert, to these jagged, you know, difficult areas, the deserts, the, the cliffs, and using natural barriers instead of any physical constructed barrier. And that was the, the kind of explicit border policy that had its own unintended effects, uh, but which they then tried to control those uninhabited spaces. They weren't just wide open. Uh, they were being controlled by radars, by sensors, uh, by drones, by blimps, you know, these different types of more virtual border uh, surveillance that allowed them to get a sense of who was moving and what was moving without having a physical wall. Okay, so now the president has issued an executive order saying we're building a wall. What do we know about what exactly he means by that? And what other than presumably there would now be more physical barrier in the areas that there's currently uh, only natural barriers? What do we know about how the world is different uh, uh, along the border in a world with with the wall as articulated in this executive order from now? So it's still unclear what exactly Donald Trump means when he says a wall. It depends if we take definitions, his early definitions from the campaign. It depends if we take interviews that he gave during his transition period 
or statements that he or his team members made uh, in the past few days. It could be that the wall will be 30 feet. That's been one number that's been put out. Uh, sometimes it's 50 feet. Sometimes it's, it's even been 80 feet. Uh, and the wall sometimes grows based on criticism from Mexico. Sometimes the wall includes fencing. Uh, sometimes the wall doesn't include fencing within the span of a few days or a few weeks. And we really, at this point, don't know uh, even if, if, he would, if he was serious about building a wall along the whole border, would that also mean replacing the current fencing with a wall? Um, unlikely, but at this point, we really don't have much guidance as to the exact uh, measurements or make of the wall. Now, even before he would begin creating any version of the wall, it's he would face he and his administration would face serious challenges in terms of acquiring the land um, 67% of it is not federally owned land along the border uh, they are going to face lawsuits and pushback uh, from a wall going through natural parks or protected reserves or even Big Bend National Park um, they're going to face pushback from Native American groups who don't want the wall moving through their reservations or going through their reservations. Uh, and then, of course, environmental and immigration groups who will be organizing uh, against the, its construction. So all of this is going to come together and make a much lengthier and more expensive uh, construction process than I think President Trump is currently imagining or hoping for. So I want to get to the symbolic questions of a wall in a minute, but putting, a, putting those aside for a minute, so leaving aside what message it sends or how upset it makes uh, Mexicans and including the president of Mexico, um, what, does having a wall, would it make a substantial difference in terms of the number of people who are able to cross the border illegally uh, what what would be the consequences, assuming as, assuming the result is some greater increase in the amount of physical barrier? How significant uh, operationally is that for stemming the flow of illegal border crossing? So, President Trump has given three kind of stated objectives for the wall. The first is the one, really, that you mentioned, which is stemming and stopping unauthorized immigration. The second is stopping the flow of drugs uh, across the illicit drugs across the border. And then the third is uh, creating an extra barrier that would stop any terrorists looking to enter the United States through the southern border. In each of these, um, I think the, the common conclusion is that they are problems that will not be solved ever fully by any piece of infrastructure. Um, the trafficking of people is a supply and demand question or a humanitarian issue stemming from violence in Central America. The crossing of drugs is, again, a supply and demand issue having to deal are also dealing with uh, addiction and drug consumption in the United States and potential terrorists trying to enter uh, through this uh, over the border is again a more ideological question or a more global national security issue than than any kind of border specific question. A border wall would create a piece of 
a physical, it would create a physical barrier, uh, which would likely slow down uh, any potential crossers who are still looking to cross on land. More likely, in all three of these different issues, it would push any would-be crossers into more creative uh, routes. You already have, I mean, you already have drug traffickers crossing underground, you have them putting drugs in the gas to tanks of cars that are going through legal ports of entry, uh, they're sending drugs over with drones. With migrants, you might see more water crossings or also tunnels or also, again, paying off border patrol to let them drive through the legal ports of entry. You'll find that people uh, will do what they always do, which is become more entrepreneurial and innovative and look for other ways to, to cross into the country. Do we have a sense of what percentage of illegal migrants into the United States in fact cross that border versus fly into ports of entry and overstay visas or cross the Canadian border? I mean, if you imagine you put a wall up that was completely effective in stopping the flow of illegal immigrants from Mexico, um, what does that do to the problem, uh, broad, more broadly speaking, of illegal immigration into the United States? So to answer your first question, there are estimates of the number who come and overstay their visas. Uh, Pew released a study a few years back that said it was around 40%, which is now the figure that most people use. Although in any of these, uh, in any of these situations, finding data that's reliable, uh, doing the going through all the censuses and the surveys to figure out really how many people are here illegally is always almost more of an art than a science. Um, however. We do know that there is a substantial portion that comes legally and overstays their visas. We do know that there is a substantial, or at least a, a portion that enter on either fake or rented papers along the border, or hidden in cars, or uh, that this does happen, um, or has bribed a border patrol agent to move through. Um, we also know that the, there is a large number of uh, Central American migrants who don't even try to cross the border or and simply go to a port of entry and ask for asylum because ultimately they'll be beginning asylum cases in the United States uh, and enter through that way. They're not technically undocumented immigrants, but a lot of the rhetoric around uh, overflows and a border that's under siege is really referencing to the current uh, Central American migration that's, uh, that is overwhelming a lot of Border Patrol agents, but that stems from very different reasons than the economic motivations that sent a lot of Mexicans to the border in past years. So you sound pretty skeptical in total that, you know, the, the moral or symbolic issues aside, that you're going to make a significant dent in illegal crossing by, um, by building a physical barrier along more of or all of the southern border. Is that right? Yes and no. I actually do think it would reduce the number of illegal crossings, but I think it would be because it would raise the cost of smuggling so high that you would price out certain migrants from the smuggling market. I am skeptical of the language that 
suggests that this is somehow going to be a, a one-stop shop, one-stop fix for undocumented immigration. It just, it's just a, a infrastructure solution to an economic problem at the end of the day. And while it will, I do think, raise the cost, and uh, you could lower migration through, again, as I said, pricing out migrants, you are just not going to stop the other groups of migrants that are just going to look for other ways to enter the country other than hiking through a desert or clamoring over a wall. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web 
and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. All right, so let's turn now to those symbolic issues. Um, Mexico, one thing we know about this wall is that uh, it offends sensibilities in Mexico and that mysteriously the Mexican government does not feel compelled to pay for it. Um, And the result this week is the first international uh, bilateral international diplomatic uh, crisis of the Trump administration involving a country the United States has not had a serious problem with in uh, uh, in a lot of years. So walk us through uh, the sudden bilateral tensions between the United States and Mexico and uh, how how this materialized and what's happened so far. You know, it's a great question, uh, and it's it's right now, even today, it is moving so quickly that it's pretty difficult to get a handle on where we actually stand and how damaged the relationship is. Uh, I can kind of start at the beginning and walk you through and then tell you where we are currently, uh, which is, again, a, a pretty kind of confusing and uncertain space. And the, to be clear to listeners, mm-hmm. this is 2.30 on Friday afternoon. <laughs> so U.S.-Mexico relations may go through a revolution by the time you listen to this. <laughs> it's, it's quite possible. By in, in an hour, it could look uh, completely different than anything I'm about to say. As everyone knows, during Trump's campaign, during his transition period, Mexico featured unexpectedly quite prominently uh, It was the focus of the talk on the border. He had his Mexican migrant uh, rapist comments. Uh, This became really a centerpiece talking about Mexican immigration, Mexican trade deficits. These were some of the key campaign points that he made. Of course, this only became heightened when he visited uh, Mexico during the campaign to the the great shock of uh, many people. Uh, that the Mexican government would invite him down after these comments. Uh, And this created a fallout in Mexico, uh, a backlash against the president, who currently has 12% or less uh, popularity ratings. 
and it led to the kind of the architect of the meeting being tossed out of Los Pinos, which is Mexico's White House, and he lost his job. Fast forward to Trump's election, and you see the return of this. Uh, he was the the head of the the finance minister, and now he is the uh, foreign relations minister. Uh, and you see his return to the White House, and he begins uh, very quickly as soon as Trump becomes inaugurated ne uh, negotiations on NAFTA, on uh, migration issues, uh, and also other economic and uh, border issues. And he is currently, as we, sp I, he might still actually be in, in D.C. as we speak, along with the economics minister, undergoing these, you know, walking through these negotiations with the, the Mexican delegation. Now, up until that point, everything seemed to be moving somewhat straightforward until when he and the economics minister, when, I'm sorry, the, the Luis Vidigaray and his uh, economics minister, Ildefonso Guajardo, both arrived at the White House to begin these negotiations. It happened to be the same day that President Trump decided to sign his executive orders on the wall and on immigration which was seen as a complete humiliation to these two senior Mexican officials that they would be in the very uh, White House as he would sign such uh, symbolically, at least, if not uh, policy shifts that were seen as uh, negative towards Mexico or a negative uh, move toward Mexico. Now, in response to this, you saw the Mexican president come out and release his most strongly worded and toned statement to date in a video that he published over Twitter. Um, and this was on Wednesday night. And up until this point, he and his team have preferred dialogue and soft tones and talk about collaboration. And he came out promising to defend Mexican migrants and the interests of Mexicans in a quite fiercely worded statement. The next morning, perhaps after seeing this video, uh, Trump um, made clear that if if the Mexican president wasn't willing to pay for the wall, which is something that the Mexican president has said the previous night in his video, that he might as well not come to his current planned trip, uh, which would be this upcoming Tuesday. At that point, the Mexican president was backed into a corner uh, and ultimately canceled the trip. This announcement was kind of seen as the lowest point in U.S.-Mexico relations at least in the past 50 years, although I've heard up to the last 100 years, it's really not something anyone can really remember uh, the type of rhetoric um, and high-level canceled meetings at a presidential level. This just hasn't happened. Um, and in response to this, in all of the flurry of statements and, and emotions, uh, Trump's press secretary gave or told the press that Mexico would pay for the wall and in a kind of fumbled and I now seems misinterpreted statement, he suggested a 20% tariff or on imports coming from Mexico as a way to pay for the wall, which again sent tons of uncertainty and confusion. Now, of course, where, the, where we go from, from here, I'm not sure. I just saw a tweet that perhaps the president of Mexico and Trump had a constructive phone call. Um, and so I, I'm not really sure at this point where we're going or, or what, uh, what next steps we'll see on the political sphere. I think what we can say is that the, the feeling in Mexico of deep uncertainty, like the rug was pulled out from under them, that there is complete humiliation. I think if, if the diplomatic relations hold, we certainly are 
losing our soft power in Mexico on an exponential level. So what, um, let, 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 let's, let's game that out for a minute. Um, a humiliated Mexico that is uh, deeply hostile to the president of the United States and, and let's, let's lay our cards on the table, has some good reason to be, um, that's backed into a corner. What leverage does Mexico have against the United States? I mean, Donald Trump can say, they can say they're not paying for a wall and nobody can force them to write a check. But we're their biggest market for just about everything. What, what, so if, if Mexico's really upset with Donald Trump, uh, what, what can it do to bite at Donald Trump's ankles? Mexico is in a very difficult place. Uh, and there are certain things that could, there are certain steps it could take to quote unquote bite at Donald Trump's ankles. It is, however, I think worth saying that hurting Mexico also hurts the United States. And it's not a Mexico loses and we win uh, type of scenario. We in North America, in general, with Canada, through NAFTA, through all of our um, subsequent agreements, are so interlinked with Mexico that at this point, a lot of the economic um, tariffs that Trump has floated, those ideas throughout the campaign and the transition period, those are could be characterized somewhat as a murder-suicide in terms of certain industries, at least in the short run. I'll give you an example. The the focus on uh, automotive, the automotive industry and the building of different plants in Mexico. Now, I was down in Mexico focusing on the automotive industry about two years ago. And yes, there are U.S. companies that are building these plants in Mexico. But when you go and you ask them where their second tier or third tier suppliers are, they're not in Mexico. They're coming from Illinois. They're coming from Ohio. They're coming from Georgia or Louisiana, and they're being shipped across the border to Mexico before maybe the the product they go into then comes back to the United States. This is a really back and forth market, and the moment that you put up tariffs and Mexico puts up retaliatory tariffs, this is not just going to hurt Ford, this is going to hurt all of the tire producers or the electronics producers that are creating the products that go into these cars in Mexico. So these policies, given the structure of our economic markets, given the structure of our industries, they will hurt Mexico, but they will also hurt suppliers and companies and industries in the United States. So is it possible to separate the trade issues from the wall issue, or are they I mean, they're clearly integrated in Donald Trump's mind, right? He, 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 he doesn't want to trade with Mexico. He hates NAFTA and he wants a big wall between the United States and Mexico. Um, but is it possible to think about those issues as separate or are they really as connected as Trump? they are in Trump's minds? And I think uh, probably his vocabulary has made them very connected in the minds of a lot of Mexicans. I'm not entirely sure how they are connected. Uh, one is border security and 
creating a physical infrastructure barrier along our border to keep out illicit drugs and illicit goods and illicit people. Um, the other is uh, economic, is tariff-free trade moving legally through the United States and Mexico. This has all been, you're absolutely right, kind of lumped together, but these are very separate issues that could be handled separately and should be. So if Trump were, were being disciplined, which is a, it's a, that's a bit of a contradiction in terms, but if he were being disciplined, he could say, um, we have certain trade issues that we want to reopen NAFTA about, and we want to build a wall, but we, but, but, but he, he could drop the whole, if you don't pay for the wall, I will retaliate through trade thing and, and thereby keep the issues much more separate than he's doing. Of course, this was uh, the George Bush and even actually to a lesser extent, but still to some extent Obama, which both presidents expanded the uh, border patrol. They invested in security at the border. They focused at the border. Uh, there was the Secure Fencing Act with Bush that is what mandated the construction of our, a lot of our current border wall. And this was while we currently pursued free trade and deepened trade and deepened integration on economic issues, but also on a host of other you know, security, energy, elect, uh, environmental, health, kind of education, cross-border sectors. The fact that these are being lumped as a we are going to only address them together is is not something that we've really ever seen before in U.S.-Mexico relations. You've been admirably apolitical in all of your answers to these questions, and now I'm going to bait you a little bit. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Is there any aspect of this um, that reflects anything other than the new president coming in and picking a fight with Mexico? I mean, is there, is there any element of this that reflects failure of, on the part of the last three administrations um, to, uh, you know, to deal appropriately with Mexico that this is correcting in some, in, in some respect? Or is this simply Donald Trump fulfilling or, or attempting to fulfill campaign promises that were in fact crazy when issued and are just as crazy and destructive <laughs> when, when implemented? I think, I'll, I'll give a, a somewhat fair answer, I think, but I think it's really the truth. Past policies focused on domestic economic issues. And I don't think this is exactly the failure of past administrations. It's, it's also a collective failure of national focus, uh, have created the conditions upon which NAFTA and Mexico become these incredibly easy symbolic targets for discontent. Uh, whether that wasn't a focus on any type of significant substantive economic development programs in Rust Belt cities or in, in yeah, no, in, in creating the economic conditions where people would feel like even though the factory shut down in their city, there were other opportunities that they could move to that were perhaps more 21st century economic style industries. And I think that's the failure. And really, you saw NAFTA, the discontent towards Mexico, towards NAFTA did not start with Trump. But he harnessed it and he pushed it and he 
fostered it to the point where it really grew and expanded. And now he's still riding that same wave. Uh, in terms of actual policy, this there is a grain of truth, or by truth I mean good policy, but it's buried very deeply in a lot of bad policy. In the sense of, we probably should open up NAFTA. And, so and, wait a minute. Let 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 mm-hmm. let zero in on this. In in this cra- in in all of the crazy stuff that's happened over the last week, we, in the U.S. Mexico relationship, what is the kernel of good policy or real insight that's that that is getting lost and that's worth focusing on? So I'm being generous, uh, but I do think there are areas where. NAFTA in tweaks uh, could have been improved. It was uh, written and passed over 20 years ago. The global economy, the U.S. economy, the Mexican economies look different. You could be addressing the non-sexy but important, you know, non-tariff barriers or regulatory standard, but that's not what we're hearing. So that's what I mean when I say there are perhaps a grain of, of truth of, okay, we could have gone back and made this better. It's just it's buried in a much larger bad policy issue, which is that's not what they're actually trying to do. Uh, This is more symbolic. This is more about getting a better deal, quote unquote, for America. Um, Instead of the actual, you could go in and and if you really wanted to, you could perhaps do something that would be good policy and help the American worker. We just haven't really seen that uh, in the past few days. In terms of picking a diplomatic fight, there is there, there's no good policy in that. Uh, Mexico, you know the statistics. It's our third largest export market. It is our number one kind of other than Canada. It's really one of our top security partners. We work with them very closely on a host of shared concerns and shared threats that range from drug traffickers to potential terrorists. I mean, we have cross-border waterways, cross-border aquifers, cross-border endangered species. We have, you know, 30-something million people who claim Mexican heritage living in this country. This is a country that we should be building ties to, given that we share geographic issues, geographic concerns, demographic concerns, security concerns, energy concerns, environment. Just the list goes on and on. So, no, there's there really, in my opinion, there's no reason to pick a fight with an ally uh, over over any of these issues. Could some of the policy be improved? Absolutely. But that would be a more incrementalist, tweezer-style policy shift rather than the bludgeon uh, that we've seen being wielded over the past couple days that is unlikely to wield benefits for Mexico, definitely not, and really not the U.S. either. How is this playing in Mexico? Is this playing as uh, as a fight with Donald Trump? Or is this um, playing as a fight with the United States? As in, is this a situation where, um, you know, the Mexican body politic is really able to distinguish between, you know, the sort of gestalt behavior of the United States uh, and the behavior of the president toward them? Uh, Or is this a situation where, you know, the president really represents all of us and is going to create a great deal of resentment and anger at the United States in Mexico? Now, 
I don't want to speak on behalf of all Mexicans, but I can tell you about my experience being in Mexico City just last week, and that was before uh, the events of the last couple of days. And I think that it's, it's both Donald Trump and there is a component that is aimed at the American people on the basis, and that's anger, and on the basis of the American people are who elected Donald Trump to the presidency. And I think for a lot of Mexicans who have spent time in the United States, who have family members in the United States, who have welcomed Americans who have traveled to Mexico, I think there's a confusion of how their, their country, who they saw as a great partner and ally, uh, really could become the, I don't want to say piñata, that's so cliche, the punching bag uh, for the U.S. for the to get cheap political points on the side of the border. And I think there is a confusion about uh, how we could elect and support a man who would hold these thoughts against their, their country. Um, but I think it's also important to say that this has not just been anger directed at uh, the United States or at President Trump, but also at their own officials for not often taking a strong enough position um, against Trump's statements, um, for going along with what he's saying, for, uh, for negotiating. And there's a, a debate within Mexico about the right role uh, of cooperation and the right role of, of standing up to Trump. So in all, I think it's inevitable that this will hurt cross-border people-to-people ties, cross-border perceptions. Um, I think you're going to see more of a mainstreaming of skepticism and um, more of a nationalist pride perhaps rising up against the U.S. again in in Mexico than we've seen recently. Uh, But this is going to be a lot more complicated and it will also play out in Mexican politics, especially since they have a presidential election coming up next year. Stephanie Loiter, we will have you back to talk about this as it develops, I, 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 I have to say I did not expect the first foreign policy crisis of the Trump administration to be with Mexico, but uh, we are grateful, grateful to you to being available on to be available on short notice to discuss it with us. We will talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. I look forward to being back. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Please spread the word and promote the podcast via your social networks on Twitter, Facebook, and email. Thanks for listening. to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.